So we're going to be in uh, a study of the book of Haggai, uh, and this is our last week in that study. Again, we're in the bigger series of the Minor Prophets. And we've studied uh, a number of them. We're not doing all of the minor prophets, basically the last 12 books of the Old Testament, and uh, often ignored books. Uh, and so Haggai, uh, this is our, our third week here, and next week we're going to do the last of our series in, uh, of the minor prophets, and that'll be Malachi. And then over the summer, we're going to do Jesus' parables, kind of come New Testament uh, and so that's where we're going. Uh, but just to remind you where we've been in the book of Haggai, uh, basically, um, remember that God's people had been carried off to Babylon uh, to exile there. They had returned. Uh, they started to rebuild the temple that was destroyed. Uh, they got the foundation laid, and then they kind of quit. Uh, and here we are, 18-ish years later, and God is saying, hey, uh, your houses." are beautiful, yet my house lies in ruins. And, and he calls them to consider their ways. And so, uh, so here we are, kind of at the tail end of that. This is uh, kind of, uh, you know, uh, as the word has come to, the word of God has come to Haggai and then to the people, this is the end of that, the last message for God's people in the book of Haggai. So would you stand with me? We're going to look at verse 10 to the end of the chapter. And, uh, and then we will go uh, just into the study of the word. So on the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? And the priests answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the priest answered and said, it does become unclean. And then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands that they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures... But there were, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, since the day that the Lord, or since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the, the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. 
and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, while the beginning of Haggai was really understandable, the end of Haggai, uh, a little cryptic. So let's just ask God to teach us by his spirit. Father, would you uh, send your spirit in power this morning that your word would be understandable to us? But God, not just uh, that we would know it in our mind, and in our intellect. Father, I pray that you would grip us in our hearts. Father, for those who may outwardly look like they are doing things for you and living a life that is honoring to you, yet inwardly they are not surrendered. Holy Spirit, would you come and break in? Father, and even as I pray that, I know that years ago I surrendered my own life, yet there's so many ways that I live uh, as your people here in Haggai, uh, a life not surrendered, but yet outwardly looking right. So, Father, I pray that you'd meet us here by your Spirit. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So, it's Mother's Day, and uh, in honor of Mother's Day, uh, uh, I want to look at it from a perspective of being a child. So, can you think back? Either you are a kid, or you think back to those times when you were When your mom told you to do something, and outwardly you did it, yet inwardly you were stubbornly disobeying, right? You know, it it, it might look like the kid that does what you told them to do, but they, they stomp the whole way there, right? That doesn't happen in our house ever. Uh, Probably doesn't happen in yours. So I'm I'm just talking about other people, right? Uh, And, but, but. It's not just a kid problem, right? It, it's interesting that uh, oftentimes it can become uh, a old, you know, young adult problem or maybe even into years of adulthood because what happens oftentimes is not just with moms and kids. Think about people that have grown up around the things of, around the things of God, around the church, so to speak. They know what God says. They know how to kind of play it right. They know how to live outwardly. They don't even know the things that they're supposed to do and maybe even sometimes do them. Yet, their walk with God or their their life of uh, honoring God is merely external, but internally they could care less. It's one of those dangers of... of, uh, just the, the, that kids would grow up in the church. They're so familiar with the things of God that outwardly they can play the game, yet inwardly they don't care. It's interesting because it doesn't just stop at young adulthood, but that could play into decades of your life. So I love that we're here. I love it that we're here But is this in some way an external thing that doesn't match internally what's going on in your heart? Because that's what God speaks to here in Haggai chapter 2. God is speaking to the external 
actions that are on the money, but internally something else needs to occur. So uh, what, in in a sense, is your heart before God uh, is more important than your works for him. Okay, your heart before God is more important than your works for him. Because Haggai is setting up this point to the people by asking about the law. Okay, so he's asking the priests about the law of God. And he's, he's drawing conclusions from uh, the Levitical laws uh, of the Old Testament about uh, clean and unclean, or holy and Unholy. So in verse 12, as you kind of look there, in it, uh, he goes to the priest and he says and asks a question. And he's asking the question of, all right, there's, uh, there is something that's set apart, consecrated, holy. And it's, it's a piece of meat that is consecrated to the worship of God. And it's being held in a garment, okay? Kind of like in the fold of his garment. And that garment touches something else, okay? Does the... Does the something else become holy or clean and ceremonially, ceremonially set apart? Okay, follow the logic. The logic is that the meat is set apart to the things of God. Because it's being held in a garment, that becomes set apart to the things of God. The garment as well. But if the garment touches something else, does it become set apart? And the priests say no. And they're right to interpret it that way. Then he goes on to the next thing, verse 13. There is an unclean person because they became defiled uh, by touching, um, uh, an unclean person defiled in some way, basically by touching a dead body. They touch some food. Does that food become unclean? The answer is yes. So <laughs> you're like, what are you talking about, Keith? I had to read it a few times myself. So. Basically, the first question is, holy meat makes a garment holy. The garment touches something else. Does it make it holy? They say no. A defiled, uh, a defiled body, a person touches it. That person becomes uh, defiled or unclean. When they touch the food, does it become unclean? Kind of like a third stage of uncleanness. The answer is yes. So holiness doesn't pass as easily as uncleanness, okay? Uh, And then Haggai draws a conclusion in verse 14. If you want to check my math on all that, Leviticus is there for the taking. So so in, in verse 14, we get to this. So then Haggai answered and said. So he draws from those two questions that he asked the priests. They answer, holiness, uh, holiness doesn't pass. Uncleanness does pass. Okay? Then Haggai answered the people and said this, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Okay? So what are they doing? So chapter 1, God calls them to come back and not just work on their houses, but work on the temple and rebuild the house of God. Okay? So consider your ways. Are you only thinking about yourself, or are you about my business as well? And so they come, and they come back, and so they start to work on the temple. They start to do what God asked them to do. But then here's Haggai saying this, and he's saying, you know, this people is just like the uncleanness of that defiled person, that basically every work of their hands— 
is unclean. Why? Because they themselves are unclean. The question to be answered is, can impure people engage in a holy task? Todd already kind of inferred towards it uh, in our call to worship, but that's the question. Can impure people do something holy and righteous for God? So what I want to kind of point to is, obviously, when we start thinking about our work for him uh, compared to our heart before him, there's this nature of duplicity because these people were doing work for God, uh, building the temple, but their heart still needed to be right before him. Does that make sense? They were doing outwardly what they were called to do, but inwardly God was saying there's still something left. In a sense, the Lord takes no pleasure, one author said, in their undertaking of this sacred task that he told them to do. They're doing what God told them to do, yet he's saying, you're still missing it. What needed to be resolved? What needed to be kind of entered into was their spiritual condition before God, the heart. So here it is. It's so easy to do things for God, to show up at church, to maybe even, you know, attempt to obey and and live a life of obedience. But yet if your heart is not surrendered, there is something deeply awry. And God is saying, no, 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 that is not what this is about. Jesus actually says it this way in Matthew 9. He's actually quoting Hosea. He's telling them to go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And, you would, and, and in that day, the Old Testament sacrifices were the thing that they were supposed to do outwardly. And Jesus is saying, go learn what this means. Instead of doing the outward obedience, go learn what it is to have a heart of mercy. That the heart is actually comes before the outward, uh, the outward actions. You know, so if you ever think you're honoring God in terms of what you do for him, not that obedience and what we do is wrong, but you may be in danger of falling into this pattern of living. John Calvin said it this way. Um, whoops, there it is. Uh, that whoever intrudes external ceremonies on God in order to pacify him trifles with him most childishly. Basically, if you are trying to use outward behavior and external obedience to to pacify or satisfy God, you're probably on shaky ground. You know, it could be asked, you know, if you were to die tonight, And stand before God. And he says, why would I let you into heaven? What would you say? And so truly I'm asking. If you were to stand before God. And he says, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? As I've asked that that question. That was actually the question that I came to grips with. When I came to know Christ. That was the question that was asked by a speaker. And... uh, and so I, I asked it, I've asked it to so many people, and I ask it to you. What would you say? Why would God let you into heaven? I often hear, well, I'm a pretty good guy. I take care of my family. Uh, I don't steal. I don't lie much. Uh, I've been uh, faithful to my wife. I haven't killed anyone. I go to church regularly. I hear those answers all the time. But w- 
All of those things are what? What somebody does. External realities before God. And none of those will make you right before God. And that's what God is pushing on. If that is your answer of why God would let you into his presence eternally, you are on shaky ground. But the beautiful promise of the gospel is there's an answer. It's not about your obedience. It's not about you living rightly before God to earn your way in. There is something of the grace of God. And you might say, well, you know, I, I've, you know I've, I've done all these things. You know, I've really lived rightly. And Jesus says uh, at the judgment day, you know, if you are resting on your own on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Isn't it interesting? These outward obedient actions, Jesus calls lawless. There's got to be something more than just external behavior going on. Now, don't misunderstand. Actions matter. But they are always a response to faith. Faith in Christ leads the way our actions follow. Faith in Christ brings about our works for God. Our works for God without faith in Christ gain us nothing. I would actually say they actually put us in a really dangerous place. If you are resting on your work, it puts you in this place where you feel like you are right before God, but yet you are in extreme danger because you cannot live right enough. And how does God respond to this sense of duplicity? Okay, how, do we, how does God respond when his people are living externally right, but internally there's something more that needs to occur in their heart with him? Okay, he actually, in verse 14, we're going to read it, uh, we read it earlier, he actually doesn't talk about my people, he talks about this people. That, I mean, it was just, you know, or this nation, and is often a negative connotation when God uses that pronoun to talk about his people. You know, uh, it's kind of, you know, like when moms and dads joke, you know, your kids uh, are you know, doing something. You know, th- there is a sense, not, I don't think God's casting them off, but there's a sense of a disconnect uh, in his response to the duplicity of his people. And he gets to verse 15, because of this, if you are living uh, externally only and internally, you're not surrendered. This is what the word of the Lord says. Now then, consider from this day on, from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? So basically, before they started uh, to do what God had called them to do, God's asking, well, how, how did that work out for you? When you cared about your house and not mine, how did it turn out for you? That's the, the question. The answer is, when one came to a heap of 20 measures... There were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you all and all the products of your toil with blight and mildew and hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. How did it go for them? When they cared about themselves and ignored the things of God, God frustrated their efforts. They went to look uh, and they figured 20 measures of something would be there, and how many were there? 10. 
In a sense, God cut their productivity by at least half. The other one, they come to find 50, but there were only 20. That's under 50%. And what is blight? Blight is this intense heat that often comes uh, with the eastern winds that blow over Palestine coming out of the Arabian desert. And it like just wipes crops out because it's this hot easterly wind. And so blight is that. Mildew is when, when plants turn kind of a, a, a yellow or a pale green. And so blight was caused by extreme heat. Mildew by excessive moisture. Both were occurring to their crops and to what was going on. Their, their harvest was reduced by 50%. You know, th- these words are very similar to Amos chapter 4. I struck you with blight and mildew. Your many gardens and your vineyards and the, your fig trees and your olive trees and, and the locusts devoured. Uh, and yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord, all picking up the, the curses of Gener- uh, Deuteronomy 28, the curses of the covenant. So blight, heat, mildew, moisture, a small harvest. Who did all of this? Who did all of this in Haggai 2? God. God is saying in very clear terms, he was the one that brought all of that onto his people. Now, that is not the American God, is it? The American God wouldn't cause any harm to befall his people. But the, Amer- but the American God is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible does not let his people stay in the duplicity of externally doing one thing, but yet internally not surrendered. The God of the Bible moves against that. And that's why we get in verse uh, 17 there, I struck you with all these things, yet you did not turn to me. God is doing these things. God might actually be frustrating your way right now so that you might return to him, that you might surrender your heart to him again. There's that that beautiful word, uh, it was said in verse 15, and it was the word consider. You know, now then, consider from this day onward. Verse 18, it actually gets said two more times, uh, two more times in verse 18, consider from this day onward, uh, and then at the end of that, consider. Remember, it's the same word that we saw in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verse 5. Chapter 1, verse 7. Now here, three times in our passage. And remember, it's two words. Two Hebrew words put together, translated consider. And it's a right translation. But it is to place or arrange something. So to place something and the word heart put together. So it's to place your heart or to arrange your heart So consider is not just think about, but it is where are you placing your heart? Consider from this day forward. Are you just honoring externally or is an internal dialogue as well? The repetition just highlights that call and that need for repentance. Okay, And so if that is what's going on, then the faithfulness of God has to come in. Because that's really bad news. Okay? Uh, You think about yourself, uh, your heart's a mess, you're just living externally. If that's the end of the story, there's no hope. The beautiful promise of the gospel is that the faithfulness of God 
overcomes our unfaithfulness. The end of verse 19, from this day on, I will bless you. There is this restoration of the present, okay? Uh, That it is not just a future thing that God's going to do. There really is a restoration of the present day that is the seed yet in the barn. So basically, they started to actually live and listen to the things of God, Okay, we're months, months removed from seed going into the ground. Okay, God's doing his thing of germinating and growing and all this stuff. And he's asking the question, is it yet in the barn? The answer is no. Okay. Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, sorry, the olive tree have yielded nothing. But from this day on, I will bless you. God will bring the harvest in. God will provide. God promises to bless these people. So so obviously there's something going on in their response to the things of God. Yes, they're externally living. Uh, There's something that goes on in their response in their heart. uh, And God is the one who promises to restore, not just in the present, I will bless you, but he restores our future. Now, this is where it gets kind of oddly cryptic. You thought the Leviticus stuff is? Now we're going to get uh, a little bit more, uh, a little bit deeper into things. And so God restores our future. So it's that last promise to Zerubbabel. Remember, he was the governor of Judah who led them back, uh, or led them, or he came back and was helping them rebuild the temple. Speak to Zerubbabel. Governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nation and overthrow the chariots, their riders, and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. Okay, so the, if this one, remember all the other promises were Zerubbabel, the governor, then there was Joshua, the high priest, and Haggai, the prophet, prophet, priest, and king, students, okay, all right, you learned about that at spring break, and, uh, and so here we have the ruler, or the governor, kind of representing the kingly office, being singled out as playing a major role in what God is going to do for the future of his people. Again, who is the primary actor? What does God say? I will shake, I will overthrow, I will destroy, I will overthrow. And he uses that word again. There will be a day when God judges the nations. What was the nation that stood against them? Was Babylon in this day. Uh, and, and we do see Babylon uh, falling uh, in the near future of this passage. But there will also be a day when God judges the nations. In, verse, uh, in Hebrews chapter 12, just to kind of fast forward uh, through a lot of years of biblical history. In Hebrews chapter 12, uh, go back and read this passage. It's, it's awesome in its, its look at uh, the end times. But in Hebrews chapter 12, at that time his voice shook the earth, uh, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. There's a quote from Haggai 2. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, the things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Now, what is he talking about? He's talking about a kingdom 
that he is ushering in. Therefore, let's be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. There will be a day. That's what, the, that's what this, this prophecy is talking about. There will be a day when God will shake, in a sense, in judgment, the nations and all powers and anything that stands against him. And so, uh, so then how does this become a promise for us? Okay? We don't live in, you know, uh, the 400s, 500s BC. How is this a promise for us? On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. There's that phrase, on that day, which is oftentimes used as the coming day of the Lord, the day of final judgment that God will move against uh, all things. Okay, It's used with an eschatological meaning, end times nuance, oftentimes in the prophets. And he talks about Zerubbabel as my servant. Biblical question, who else in, in the Old Testament, who else is referred to as my servant as God talks about them? Okay, Moses is one of them, I heard that, and David, and King David, okay? Uh, and so David is often and very much described that way, even in Ezekiel 34, he's, God's promising restoration to Israel, and remember, this is after David died already, centuries before, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. So obviously he's not talking about David, David. He's talking about a, David as a representative type of a king. And he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord and I have spoken. And so when we go back to Haggai, who now, he's now saying Zerubbabel is my servant. And then he also calls Zerubbabel his signet ring. Now, what's a signet ring for a king? We would often, uh, we sign our, our uh, signature to something, but if, if you really got to prove that it was you, who do we call in in our culture? We call in the notary public, right? And, you know, they've got those cool seals. Now they're just stamps. But back in the day, they were raised, and they kind of made that, that, that kind of really cool symbol on the piece of paper. It was some way to seal or, or to guarantee that is real, and that is what is being declared. Back in the day, in the ancient time, a signet ring was that seal. So, the, so any kind of royal document or royal decree, it would be kind of, you know, some wax would be put on it. The king would take his signet ring and press it into the wax, and it would be his mark, his signature, his notary public, so to speak. And then God is saying that Zerubbabel is his signet ring. So what is God saying with that? What is he saying that this ruler of these displaced people that have now come back and are rebuilding the temple, this ruler is now the guarantee of what God is doing. God is authenticating his work among these people. That's weird, isn't it? Why is he saying that? Well, it goes back to Jeremiah 22 when he says he took his signet ring off. As I live, declares the Lord, 
uh, though Kaniah, which is, uh, this guy gets lots of names. It's another name for Jehoiakim, uh, uh, not Jehoiakim, his dad. Um, another name is Jokaniah. Jo- uh, he has three names in the Old Testament. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, through him, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, if he were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear it off. God removes his guarantee of this promise to his people here. And now he is saying in Zerubbabel, he is putting his signet ring back on. It is a kind of a metaphor of a renewal of the, of the fortunes of God's people. God is renewing his kingly reign among his people. God is saying, Zerubbabel, this ruler, he's the promise. He's the guarantee that I am, uh, again, will be a king among my people. What's beautiful in that is three times what is repeated in Haggai 23. What is repeated three times, declares the Lord. I'm going to do this, declares the Lord. I'm going to do this, declares the Lord. The certainty of any promise is in the character of God. And so is it any wonder with Zerubbabel being the guarantee of God's continued rule and reign for his people, guess who's in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1 and in Luke? Zerubbabel. Isn't it interesting that the coming king of Jesus, the promised Messiah, uh, what one author said, an even greater Zerubbabel, we often use that about a greater David, never seen it used about Zerubbabel, but it's true. This promise is of a king who will come and rule for all time. And his name is King Jesus. The greatest promise God could give his people then and the greatest promise he can give us now is that we have a king who rules and reigns. Are you merely externally obeying him? Or internally are you surrendered to the living God? Because how would you answer the question if you were to die tonight and stand before God and would he let, why would he let you into heaven? If you are resting on your works and what you do, you are without hope. If you are resting on, I have surrendered and submitted my life to King Jesus, the one who is the promised one of God who will usher all things in, then you have hope. Not just a king that reigns, but a king that died for you. A king that rose to give you life. A king that gives you the very definition of what life is. If you are surrendered to him, that really is the only answer. I have no hope in myself. I have all hope in who Jesus is and what he has done on my behalf. If you have not come to that place of surrender, truly, Your external obedience gets you nowhere in God's economy. If you want to know him, it's about surrendering your life to King Jesus. Trusting in him and what he's done to give you life. Do you know him this morning? Is your heart soft before him? Let's pray. Father, I pray that uh, that you would do... What only the power of the Spirit can do, 
take some confusing Levitical law and promise of the kingship and the fulfillment of promises uh, in Christ and then even into uh, the, the last days. God, I pray that you take all of this. God, uh, convince us of your goodness. Father, if we are stuck in out, outward, external obedience, yet inwardly we don't care, inwardly we are not surrendered, by the power of the Spirit, would you move us? Would you soften our hearts? Would we turn to you today? And pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.